Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and I am thrilled to be sitting in person for the second time, because we sat together last night, sort of, when you were winning an award, Pip Williams, author of The Dictionary of Lost Words. Thank you so much for being here. Ben, thank you so much for having me. I know that we tried to set this up almost a year ago to the day and something got in the way. What was that? (laughs) External factors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for whatever reason, I couldn't fly from Adelaide to Sydney uh, because the borders were shut. So it is an absolute pleasure to be here. And it is on the post of your success at the Arbia Awards. It's extraordinary. You got a gong. You got a trophy. I know. It's just been a really wild, wonderful time over the last few months. And, you know, if if I'd been here last year, we would have talked about the book and my hopes and dreams for it. And um, now we're actually living the hopes and dreams. So, yeah, it's had a great run. It's surreal, Pip, because I feel like, this book is an old friend now, you know. We've we've been working on this thing and moving quantities of it, um, and been getting back all this feedback, all this joy from this one title um, for a year now, um, and and now we finally get to have a, a proper yarn about it. What I wanted to do, very loosely and casually, is for you to tell me just the story of how this book came to be, because I think it's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And I don't ever tire of it, you know, so it has been a year, a year of Zooming. <laughs> um, but I, I came to this story um, through another book, which I think is often how we write. It's, it's through other writers and the things that um, have been of interest to them. Um, and so I read Simon Winchester's The Surgeon of Crowthorn which is all about the um, relationship between James Murray, who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and one of the more prolific uh, volunteers. And when I say volunteers, I'm talking about the people who, um, from the general public, who sent in words with sentences from books um, that helped the lexicographers um, define the words. So the sentences showed people how the word had been used. Um, and it was a really interesting book. Uh, it's non-fiction. I highly recommend it. But at the end of it, the thing that stuck with me was this idea that the dictionary was a very male endeavour. Mm. And the idea that it could be biased. And it was shocking to me in a way. I looked at the dictionaries on my shelf and I thought, I have never questioned their authority. Never. They, you know, dictionaries like encyclopedias have been used to, um, you know, solve problems, to settle arguments. They're supposed to be objective. They're supposed to be objective. And, you know, in Scrabble, <laughs> if you, if you um, propose a word and someone disagrees, you look it up in the dictionary to see whether or not it exists. And if it's not in the dictionary, you're not allowed to use it. And... This idea, like I said, I, I was kind of shocked by it because in, in a way it was a, a, an issue that was sitting in plain sight and I thought, oh, 
surely other people have thought this. And I did a bit of research and um, in particular I was interested in the idea that if, if the dictionary was collated and the words were defined by men and the Oxford English Dictionary, the first edition, all of the editors, all of the lexicographers, all of the people paying for it were men, there were a few female assistants but they didn't have decision-making power. No. Um, but most importantly, all most of the books that they were referring to were written by men. We're talking about a Victorian-era um, endeavour and um, at that time and in the hundreds of years before that time, many, many people were illiterate. So it's not just gendered, it's also class-based because um, they could only include a word in the dictionary if it had a textual history. And so I initially, just out of interest, uh, looked up <laughs> missing women's words. <laughs> in, I just put that into Google. <laughs> um, but I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that told me whether or not there was, you know, words that had never been um, written down and therefore had had disappeared from the language. And, of course, how could I, you know, if they weren't written down and they weren't mm. um, recorded, then we may not know ever what those words were. Um, sometimes slang dictionaries, obviously, can help you with that. And even that is interesting. Slang was not considered proper English and so was excluded from the Oxford English Dictionary on the whole as well. Um, and so this idea that the dictionary could be biased, that it could be gender biased in particular, class biased, I thought actually was a really important idea. And I, I was actually talking because, like you said, we're, we're meeting here today because the um, Australian Book Industry Awards were on last night. Um, and so there's all sorts of people in town who I haven't seen for such a long time, including my own publisher mm. um, from a firm press. And we were actually talking about this this morning um, my biggest fear when I decided to start writing this book was that I would let the idea down, that the idea itself um, and the issue that I was concerned about I actually thought was really, really important um, and I was terrified that I wouldn't do it justice, that I'd write a bad book and then all of a sudden the idea was no longer um, kind of unique I suppose someone else could certainly write about it but the you know that that hook that um incendiary idea would be gone because I'd ruined it <laughs> with my dreadful writing this was my fear um because I knew it was something that needed to be written about in one way or another and I knew that fiction was the most accessible way um to write about an issue that I think is important um, for people to consider. Uh, and so well said. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to all the people who actually, um, you know, once I'd written the book, you know, I had a wonderful editor at, at, at Affirm Press and, and I've had wonderful people supporting the book, including Booktopia and, you know, the book industry in general, mm. who've gotten the book into people's hands. Um, and I... I'm just so grateful that that all of the people, and I had a mentor too for about six months, Tony Jordan. Um, all these people have helped me to honour the idea, and I can't be more grateful that that I didn't let it down. That's remarkable. 
that drive though that i that that will to uh work with that idea has driven you a long way though just yourself this is a big endeavor for pip um yeah. you went all the way to oxford yes i did and it was a big endeavor and because i'd never written fiction before mm. either so i had written a memoir one italian summer um and in a way that was my apprenticeship for creative writing um I've written all my life, but as a, an academic or, you know, I've written a lot of reports, <laughs> which doesn't usually set you up for um, creative writing. In this fact, is nothing like that. <laughs> in fact, quite the opposite. Um, and so uh, that was, again, the fear. I'd never written fiction before and, and I was, you know, I was embarking on this this big idea and and historical fiction as well. I'm not a historian. Um, though I am familiar with research, I was a social researcher. And so um, it was very important to me to get the facts right. And when I say the facts, I mean the things that aren't contested, like the dates of publication of words, like the people who worked on it that we know of, um, the place where the words were collated and defined. The scriptorium. The scriptorium. The scrippy. Yeah. I mean, isn't it a beautiful word? Yes. Um, <laughs> but the reality was a garden shed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, unfortunately the shed doesn't exist anymore, So, but the house does. And the house uh, that James Murray lived in is obviously still in Oxford and the, um, the red letterbox that, that they had to put outside that house is still there uh, because there was such a, a huge volume of mail. Uh, Submissions. Well, this was actually mail coming out of the scriptorium. Oh, outgoing mail. Yeah, outgoing mail. So they had their own box <laughs> with, a, with a key and everything, I think, that they could just, so they could just put their bag of letters in there because it was, a, you know, all cor- there was no email, mm. believe it or not. This whole, the dictionary was compiled by hand. By hand, yeah. So it was an extraordinary, um, you know, project. And I think of it actually as one of the first crowdsourcing projects because James Murray as editor realised this was never going to get done because the aim was to actually define every word in the English language, yep. past and present. I know, extraordinary ambition. And he realised that wasn't going to be, get done by a whole lot of, you know, stuffy scholars yep. working on it. They needed to enlist the help of the general public. And so he sent out uh, a plea in journals and periodicals and newspapers asking people to send in examples of words and how they've been used. And so he got thousands and thousands and thousands, millions of slips sent to him and I had the enormous pleasure and privilege of visiting the archives at Oxford University Press where they still have uh, thousands and thousands of these slips in boxes. Wow, handwritten Handwritten submissions and I could, and some of them still tied with the string that the lexicographers oh. tied them with a hundred years ago. And I could go through those boxes of slips because they're all alphabetical. So if I needed to have a look at a word that was or wasn't actually in the dictionary, I could see whether it had come in as a slip. As a slip. And therefore, if it's not in the dictionary, it was rejected. Mm. So. I can also look at the proof pages of the dictionary and see where someone has put in a line, put a line through a word and a definition. So it might have been in there and at the last minute. Someone said that's not up to par. Yeah, yeah. It's um, It strikes me as 
I really, the ambition of that project, the foresight to go, you know, over years and decades, we will transcribe the English language into a working document, a mm. reference document for academics and eventually everyone. Mm. Um, that I think that's maybe a product of the foresight and the optimism of that industrial Victorian era, do you think? I, I can't I see know. that happening pre-enlightenment, obviously. No. Actually, Ben, that's a really lovely observation. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, the size of this project possibly was only possible because of the era that it was taking part in. Big things were happening um, and, yeah, and, and it was an ambitious time. It was a time of enormous change mm. as well, um, which I found out doing the research. So my initial interest was just the dictionary um, but once I decided to write a novel about it, of course I had to put it in context. And, and what then, a context. I know. <laughs> I know. And it, it, was, um, it was so satisfying as well to, to understand what was going on at the same time and almost in parallel. So the women's suffrage movement, the... the, the timeline for the dictionary and the women's suffrage movement is so closely aligned um, which is so interesting because of course words especially English words the English language is a very evolving thing always has been always will be and the and James Murray of course was an advocate of that thing well they weren't um, and what I don't try to do in my book in any way is is sort of turn these lexicographers into people who thought that they kind of owned the English language or um, could dictate how we used it. That's not what they were doing. They even then, I think they understood that it was an evolving thing and that they were always going to be a few steps behind mm. uh, because that's the nature of language. Did you interview modern-day lexicographers as part of the research? I did. So I had a, um, a nice relationship with a, a man called Peter Gilliver who actually wrote the history of the Oxford English Dictionary, which was a book. It came out a few years before I started writing my book and it mm. became my Bible for some of that um, factual stuff that I wanted to know. But there was a lot that he couldn't put in there even though he'd done the research. So not only did I get a sense of how lexicographers work today um, and some of the history, but he also gave me little anecdotes about some of the lexicographers who worked with James Murray, um, which helped me to put flesh on the bones of those characters because, mm. as you know, my book um, has a lot of real-life people in it as well as fictional characters and they interact. And what I wanted to do with the real-life people was... Um, I suppose, render them as honestly as I could and without judgment. I didn't know these people. I can only judge them based on what history tells me uh, and it's unfair to um, for me to assume that history <laughs> kind of got them completely or got it all right. So I take what I know and I try to imbue those characters with characteristics that they really had um, that we know from the from the history, and some of those characteristics are not in the history, but they, or they're not in the books I had access to. But Peter Gilliver had 
information about them from the archives that he could give me. Um, you know, so he talked about one of the lexicographers who during the really liked sweets, for instance. And during World War One, there was a shortage of paper, so he would sometimes write um, slips, word slips, or um, on the wax paper. Oh, from yeah, those on the back toffees. of toffee toffee wrappers, <laughs> things like that. Um, and other, you know, other um, lexicographers who he assumed. Um, well, one of them in particular who he thinks was, was gay, but at that time it was illegal. So there's no documentation, but there are hints mm. about um, this, this man's life. Uh, and, you know, he, he left under sort of um, circumstances that could be uh, kind of interpreted yeah. um, in certain ways. Um, now, not all of this goes into my book, but these sorts of stories helped me to to bring them to life a little bit, even though they weren't significant characters. They they were secondary, tertiary characters in a way. But it, yeah, was, but it all contributes it to all this does. wonderful book. Yeah. Tell us about the word bondmaid and how that just, I just think that perfectly encapsulates the gendered and class bias at the heart of your your core yeah. idea. I'm glad you asked that because there are a few words in in my book, um, and bondmaid is the very first. But there are a few words that have are like characters to me. Yeah. They have their own kind of story arc in mm. a way. They change throughout the um, story. And bondmaid is it's the start and the end of this story, um, and that's because it was. This is one of those facts that um, I I have gleaned from the history. Bondmaid is the only word that has ever been acknowledged as having been lost from the Oxford English Dictionary. So it should have been in the first volume, A and B, which was published in 1888, but it wasn't. Uh, and James Murray uh, was alerted to this through a letter from just a member of the public asking why Bondmaid wasn't in his volume of A and B. And it was, a, it, was a, it was news to James Murray and once he checked and realised it really wasn't in the dictionary, apparently he was furious. And there was a lot of correspondence about this missing word and James Murray um, assured everyone involved that it's the only word that's ever accidentally been lost from the dictionary. Now, no one knows how, so that's the, that was the key bit of information for me as a novelist is that there is no explanation for this lost word. It's a mystery. And so I had a starting point for my book and for my character, Esme. Mm. And it's not a spoiler to say that it's because of Esme that the word goes missing from the Oxford English Dictionary. And then it becomes an important word. So yeah. she's only four when, when the word comes to her. But the word pops up throughout the story. Um, its meaning is abhorrent because it means slave girl. Um, at various times, various characters kind of uh, reflect on the meaning of the word mm. and how it relates to their life, um, their relationships, uh, their futures, and it changes over time. Yeah, as we head into suffrage and the war, so much stuff happens. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Um. Tell me about the reception of this book because it's been out there. It's been around the traps and you've been getting a lot of 
feedback? I have. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it very heavy feedback in, in the form of a beautiful award that I got last night for general fiction book mm. from the Arbias. Um, and, yeah, that, that award now um, ha- means I have to put my luggage in in to the hold because <laughs> my carry-on is now too heavy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I'm so appreciative of that. Because what it means is that uh, readers have rallied round this book and they've enjoyed it, they've um, they've recommended it, they've bought it as a gift, uh, they've posted about it on every type of social media you can imagine. Um, in some ways, I'm I'm not on social media, and in some ways, I regret that because I I don't get to interact directly with some of these posts but on the it could be for the best but on the other (laughs) hand you know it is it is just so um it's now got a life of its own and it's it's being passed from hand to hand in a way that I, I couldn't I wouldn't have the time to respond to every to every post um but I'm so grateful for them um and also I think I think I would be completely overwhelmed actually if I was um, engaging with all that social media um mm. it, just in terms of I think I think it's better for me uh to to not I don't know how to say this but you got to let the book breathe and exactly. be its own I've, organic thing yes and it's better for me not to claim you know not to sort of yeah. be in there too much it's I feel like a parent with a child that's gone and done something wonderful and it's in now it's not about me it's about the book and I mm. love talking about it just like as a parent I love talking about my kids but it's it, the book is now doing its thing and um I actually I had this lovely conversation with someone not long ago a reader uh, because every now and then I, I do get readers do find a way of of getting in touch with me and and telling me what they think or or I've met somebody and every now and then someone tells me what the book is about for them mm. and sometimes they tell me something that I I had never planned for I didn't write it into the book consciously so for some people it's a book about motherhood yes and that was not my necessarily my intention that's how the book wrote itself Mm. um for other people it's a book about loss again it's not something that i necessarily planned or did consciously um you know and it starts with a lost word that there are lost people as well um and and what i realize is that um and i'm sure this is the same for any book you can write a book but it's only three quarters of the way there when it gets published and it gets finished off by the reader. And in a way, I feel like that's what's happening now. You know, the the book is finding its readers and people read it differently and everybody finishes it slightly differently and it becomes their book. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so I feel as the writer, I'm like a parent, I have to step back now and let the book do its thing and have its own effect on people. And and you know and and it's and enjoy it and just enjoy it <laughs> and yeah get your, and get your trophies yeah well just because the book can't can't hold the trophy itself so you know I will I will look after the trophy on behalf of the book <laughs> and you are a proud owner of um, speaking of heavy things um, 
some of those original volumes A and B. Is that yes. right? Yes. So I have a beautiful. They're, they're treasures. Well, I've only got one volume, but it is huge. So mm-hmm. I've got A and B, um, which was one single volume. So the first edition has twelve volumes, um, and A and B was the first. And my partner bought me, found a copy of it, um, an original copy, obviously, and yeah. And so I well have done it. him. I know, and I. What's lovely is now this year I've been able to actually um, have a few face to face events. So last year, you know, there were none, and if possible, you do it's, a bit of show and tell. I do. So especially <laughs> if it's local, it's a bit harder interstate because it's quite it's a, big, a big, big thing. leather bound thing. Yeah, uh, but if it's local, I have my own suitcase mm. uh, with various artifacts in it from from the research, but including this dictionary, and it's it's a really lovely thing to share with people. Um, and they can flip through it and find the page where Bondmaid should have been, and it is definitely missing. <laughs> <laughs> Pip Williams, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been such a pleasure, Ben, and thank you for being part of this journey because, honestly, if it hadn't been for booksellers, I would not be sitting here with you today. Oh, you make it all worthwhile. <laughs> you can get a copy of The Dictionary of Lost Words and Pip's other books, of which there's more to come. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm working on something. <laughs> you can get all those books from booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget... You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.